with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and if you'd have told me at the top of 2020 that I'd be spending most of my time with my hair in a scrunchie, I'd have told you to jog on. And yet, here I am with scrunchied palm tree a go-go. It's not quite high enough up, Mick. I'd like it more on the top and like coming down like girls used to wear it when I was at school. Okay, hang on, hang on. This is great for a podcast, mate. Good thinking. It it really is. It's going to have to be hilarious. I'm going to have to really laugh to make this work. I mean, it's hurting already. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't like it. It's a strong look. It's it's happening. It's happening. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and there are too many fucking spiders in my house. They're having a lovely time at the moment, aren't they? I had, like, I mean, I live by myself, so I'm not scared of spiders. You can't afford to be scared of spiders when you live by yourself. But I like to have an arrangement with them whereby they can live up in the corner <laughs> and I'll leave them alone. But they were fucking sitting on the sofa next to me the other day. <laughs> what were you watching? What was I watching? Uh, I was watching a documentary about the Challenger. And it literally came and sat next to me on the sofa. I can't, I had to give up one night and just go and sit in my bedroom because there was too many fucking spiders in my house. I thought maybe they were sat on the sofa next to you just as you were flicking through your vast collection of postcards of flies, just going through them. (laughs) The blue bottle is a what? Spiders like documentaries about space disasters. Later on, I Love Rock and Roll, Bad Reputation, Cherry Bomb. It is the joy of Joan Jett with our music guru come mother of cats, Liz Buckley. I speak to Kaya Stanley Money, Executive Director of Camden People's Theatre, about what's next, both for that venue and for theatre as a whole. And in Rated or Dated, I discover I'm halfway to some top quality haunting as we watch Ghost. Just push all your feelings down into the pit of your stomach. Done. Next. I didn't know you could get more terrifying, Hannah, but this is this is new knowledge. But first, the notorious RBG. Winter is coming and a return to Gilead. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're as disappointed as anyone that Cordelia wasn't what that poster made it appear to be. Is this Johnny Flynn and the not period drama? Yeah, I saw that as a period drama as much as anyone else. With the woman being sexually dominant, people were losing their yeah. shit over it. Yes. I know. Getting by the rough. <laughs> Lisa Holdsworth reckons that she's going to write the drama that everybody thought that was. And I'm ex- I'm excited. Lisa, we're counting on you. Not for the first time. <laughs> Before we start, I just wanted to tell a little story because Mick, you've been away, so you might have missed this. I was on Twitter the other day talking about somebody that I know. So I can't really go into much more detail than that. Who works in a care home and has worked in a care home throughout the pandemic hasn't had a single day off, didn't have any PPE for the vast majority of it, so did a very dangerous job caring for some exceptionally vulnerable people on minimum wage and now has to go and have an operation. And because they've only been in their job for less than a year, they're not entitled to any sick pay. Fucking hell. And according to the Benefits Office, all they are entitled to is statutory sick pay, which I believe is £90 a week, which is literally nothing and won't pay their bills. Yeah. I'm totally livid for them. But, you know me, I took my Pollyanna approach and I said, all you've got to try and do is think that there are people out there who are worse off than you are. 
take Boris Johnson, for example. He's only on £150,000 a year. He's got, (laughs) insert best guess, number of children here to look after. He has to pay for his own food. He's got a fake wedding to plan. Yeah. I mean, what what has she got to moan about? Seriously. I mean, and benefits have been capped for anything over two children. So he must be really struggling. Yeah, he really must. Apparently he's very, he's having a hard time and and life's very... Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm going to start with uh, a little bit of serious chat. So I am going to take my hair down. One, because it's hurting. And two, because I want to have some (laughs) semblance of respect uh, before I start talking. (laughs) And it's like, like taking your hat off. It's like taking my hat off, yeah. I wish men still wore hats. What would you give up in order to make that happen? Magnums. Fucking hell, she really wants those hats. Get your hats on, lads. Back to reality. 2020 has been a year of devastating, brutal loss. And clearly keen to prove it's a total shit stain. On Friday the 18th of September, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died aged 87. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the most important feminist lawyer in American history, a Supreme Court justice since 1993, a legal and pop culture icon, famous for her fiery liberal dissents, in short, the notorious RBG. So although she served the Supreme Court for nearly 30 years, it was actually during her preceding two decades as a lawyer that RBG changed the legal landscape in the U.S., Having seen and faced prejudice because she was a woman, she spent her life working to ensure that women would no longer be held back on account of their sex. And through a series of strategic and superbly argued landmark cases, she made the creation of enduring women's rights a thing of beauty. And she did it with a breathtaking intelligence. RBG absolutely knew she had to play the game to change the rules. And to gain equal freedom for women, she actually fought for them to have equal obligations. I mean, that is tough even for a full-on misogynist to argue with. And while her time as Supreme Court Justice found her consistently in the minority, a check against the wildly conservative views of the right-wing justices, the legacy she leaves and her positive impact on the lives of women cannot be overstated. So I can't not use some of RBG's own words here, and there are many famous, brilliant quotes to choose from, but I'm actually going to go with what she said most recently, which is, my most fervent wish is to not be replaced until a new president is installed. Because, yeah, that is a real worry. If Trump gets another shot at choosing a Supreme Court justice, the balance gets, well, basically there'll be no balance. It'll all be very skewed to the right. Given this would constitute a move of show-off political power, Trump is, of course, pushing hard to get his pick in before the November election. Whether enough Republican senators will consent to ram through Trump's nomination remains on a knife edge, so we'll keep you posted. In the meantime, rest well and thank you, RBG, you magnificent woman. And as for us, we need to go on fighting the way she showed us how to. Yeah, I mean, this is a worry, isn't it? Do you remember when I spoke to Hannah Levintova from Mother Jones? Yes. Back when Brent Kavanagh was put into the Supreme Court. And, you know, whenever there's a Supreme Court vacancy, there tends to be a kind of a fear that sometimes goes into hyperbole about what the the impact of that's going to be on women's rights. Yeah. Hannah said at that point, now isn't the crisis point. The crisis point is basically when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and and here we are. Because I think the problem with abortion in America is that it's not like a Rubicon issue. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, most times when society either bans something or legalizes something that's been controversial, say, for example, the smoking ban or ending capital punishment or legalizing gay marriage. Uh Firstly, opposition tends to die down. And secondly, support tends to rise as people, A, they get used to it. And B, the people who were scared to say they were for it or against it are now okay to say that. And in this country, I think abortion is a Rubicon issue. Every so often, someone like Nadine Doris or Jacob Rees-Mogg will stand up and say something about it, and we'll all just go, shut up. <laughs> and the argument the argument never takes off. Because, like I say, it's, it's we have crossed the Rubicon when, when it comes to abortion rights in, in the UK. But they've never crossed it in America. No. It's never, ever been accepted. It's It's always, always been, every election, it's been an issue. I don't know what to say to, to women in America because they went through it once. They already told all their personal stories and they already did all of that to go through it the first time. But when Roe v. Wade was passed, they won the battle, but they haven't won the argument and they need to win the argument. It's really telling, isn't it? Because even though it's still enshrined in law that it's legally allowed to have an abortion, in practice, we've seen across certain states, quite a lot of states in America, that just rolling back of time and mm. how women can have access to that bodily autonomy. Yeah, they've lost RBG, they've lost John Lewis. I don't know where their moral centre is anymore. Bruce Springsteen, allegedly, or apparently. Or, yes, definitely Bruce Springsteen. Down with that. But... Down with that. So, anyway, what's going on here? Surely just sunshine and rainbows, Hannah. Yeah. Well, as you say that, because winter is here and hang on, what? Oh, yes, as I write, it's technically still summer for one more day, but we've just decided to skip autumn altogether and dive headlong into the second wave predicted to arrive this winter. Uh As cases of COVID infections rise, the government is now apparently urging office workers to stay at home, like it hasn't just spent months repeatedly urging us to just go to work, like we were teenagers refusing to get up and do our paper rounds. Confused? Yes. Don't be. Oh, okay. These are the people who promised us an oven-ready deal for Brexit and are now presenting us with a meat slice grabbed at a late-night garage and sat on for the rest of the journey. Mmm, taste that independence. I don't feel hungry. (laughs) Top scientists, Professor Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Vallance, made a televised statement on Monday morning about the rise in infections, which they believe will lead to a rise in deaths, as many as 200 a day by November. They urge us to take four key steps to combat the spread. Number one, that hands, face, space thing, (laughs) which confusingly is three things in itself. Number two, self-isolation for those people with the virus. So I'm going to file that under common sense, although for some people... uh... Number three, reduce inter-household interaction. And number four, and I quote, address the virus through science which I'm very excited by, given it looks like I'm going to spend another few months entirely alone. Fetch me my Bunsen burner. Yes, I'm sure that's exactly what he meant. Isn't the the main thing to take away from it, but but point three that you made, reduce inter-household interaction. You made it sound sexy. I don't think you meant to. Well, um, for some of us, it it would be, but it's not. (laughs) That's why we're banning it, Hannah. I know. Well, some areas of the country are already under a stricter form of lockdown. Questions were also asked of Health Secretary Hat Mancock about whether pubs would be asked to close this weekend, to which he gave a vague answer, which he went on to clarify was neither a yes nor a no. Useful. (laughs) 
As to what we should do if our neighbours are breaking the rules, Boris Johnson said he wouldn't report people unless they were having an Animal House-style party, which I suppose is a distinct possibility if you spend your weekends at the Italian homes of the mega-rich. Who said that? (laughs) Meanwhile, Home Secretary Priti Patel, on the other hand, said people should report lawbreakers. So that's clear, concise, non-contradictory advice there. Thanks, guys. Wowzers. Wowzers. Congratulations, you've managed to make that sound so much more coherent than any (laughs) person I've heard. Well, Boris Johnson hasn't spoken yet, so it'll be more confusing. It's not going to be more crystal, is it? Um, But yeah, it's not the takeaway at all from what you've just uh, delivered brilliantly. But I hope that Professor Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Balance actually use top scientists on their CV. (laughs) That's how they describe themselves. Yeah. I'm going to use it on my CV if, if in my three months inside I manage to cure coronavirus. I said at the top that Using I think... my stockpile of hair dye, and uh, which I no longer use. I think we need some good news, yes? Yeah. Okay. Please. Let's have a whoop whoop for Zendaya, who made history at this year's Emmys by, at 24, becoming the youngest ever outstanding lead actress in a drama series for her role in Euphoria. She's also only the second black actress to win in this category in 72 years. She's following Viola Davis for her work on How to Get Away with Murder, which she won for in 2015. Zendaya had some pretty damn serious competition too, namely Jennifer Aniston, Olivia Colman, friend of the show, Jodie Comer, Laura Linney and Sandra Oh. Moving on, it turns out Zoe Lyons and Jen Brister really do know a thing or two about the funny and their recommendation of Schitt's Creek swept the board in the comedy awards now i've seen a lot of people who don't get it and haven't got along with it but i absolutely love this canadian sleeper hit too so i am well chuffed for eugene and dan levy Catherine o'hara and annie murphy ditto jesse armstrong and everyone involved in hbo's beyond brilliant succession which racked up four gongs in the drama awards best writing directing, best series and best actor for Jeremy Strong, who sadly did not wrap his acceptance speech. Oh, God, just thinking about that again just makes my stomach start turning over. (laughs) I mean, I feel quite on the money because when I said on this very podcast, I said that that rap would win Jeremy Strong, the best actor, and it did. And rightly so, but I feel like it missed a trick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another programme scooping a whole load of bling was Damon Lindelhoff's Watchmen. Watchmen is what these days is known as a limited series, a category in which it basically cleaned up, including a Best Actress Award for Regina King. Well, there you go. See, that's another thing that I said. In fact, I didn't just say Regina King would win. I believe I threatened to kick off if she didn't. I don't know what I was intending to do this morning when I got (laughs) up and found out she hadn't won. So it's a blessing that she did. <laughs> I'm also going to give an honourable mention to the ever awesome John Oliver, whose last week tonight took Best Variety Series, although it being in the variety category kind of confused mm. me. There we go. Hannah, I know Succession and Watchmen were two of your big TV picks from the past year. Anything you would like to add? No, I mean, I think, to be honest, for once, the Emmys got it quite right because they quite often go for stuff that is kind of sentimental American or a sort of historical British thing, which is not good, for example. Like, they really like that that the newsroom thing, that Aaron Sorkin thing, which was generally rubbish. And basically, you know, that was a year in which 
John Hamm should have won. I mean, there's no two ways about it. John Hamm should have won and he never did. So it's the acting awards they get wrong. And I was 100% agree. Watchmen is incredible. Genuinely, really, really good. A succession I completely love. Also mentioned Uzo Adubo, who also won Best Supporting Actress in a Limited Category for playing Shirley Chisholm in Mrs. Feminism. In Mrs. Feminism. Captain Americanus. <laughs> yeah. This first time you've ever listened to us, we mean Mrs. America. But uh, yeah. <laughs> So good for her. And of course, that's like three women of colour we've named. So our Emmys are definitely doing better on hashtag Oscars so white. I think it was somewhere in the mid 30s percentage of nominees were people of colour this year, which is a huge leap. Still maybe yeah. need work, but it's definitely moving in the right direction, which is great. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we all need a drink. Not you, pregnant lady. Put that wine down. Okay, it's no great reveal that the medical recommendation is not to get steaming when you're up the duff. However, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, responsible for creating guidance, policies and standards for the NHS in England and Wales, has proposed plans to record every drink a woman has during pregnancy on the baby's file. This means any woman drinking anything during pregnancy, even a glass of wine in the first week of it, would have that marked on her medical record, which would then be transferred to her baby's records, which is already a privacy issue there. The proposal, currently in consultation and due for publication in January 2021, although COVID is very much messing with schedules, has been made in a consultation on how to better treat fetal alcohol spectrum disorder I am absolutely not dismissing the horrible effects of FASD. But the British Pregnancy Advisory Service has said that there's no compelling research which shows unborn children are harmed by low levels of drinking, meaning the plans are, and I quote, unjustified and disproportionate. Also, as Claire Murphy, a spokesperson for BPAS, quite rightly said, women do not lose their right to medical confidentiality simply because they are pregnant. Because, yeah, that makes it all a bit, well, Gileadian. Is that a word, Hannah? Gileadian? It is now. It is now. With women once again being reduced to mere baby-carrying vessels. Yeah, this is interesting because uh, knowing what I know about alcohol, uh, it relies on women actually telling the doctor the truth. And in my experience, people who are drinking more than they think they should be drinking don't tell people the truth about how much they're drinking. That is true. So it's how it seems to me that not only is it going to make women who maybe, like you say, had a couple of glasses of wine before they realised they were pregnant and maybe go on to have one a week or something, do you know what I mean, feel rotten guilty about it while doing absolutely nothing to protect the children who are genuinely at risk of fetal alcohol syndrome. It's fascinating, but I'm also distracted because... In reference to Hannah's thing about spiders up at the top of the podcast. Oh, have you got a biggie? No, I've got a leaf from my plant in front of me and it's got a line of spider web just coming down it and about, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here, a million and four baby spiders <laughs> running up and Wowzers. down. It. It's been nice knowing you. Yeah, goodbye forever. <laughs> 
We are all over that social media in it. If you want to converse with us via the digital world, you can do so. We're on Twitter at Standard Issue UK and individually at Mixter Noonan, at That Dunleavy and at Inspira Gen. And it should be perfectly obvious which one is which. <laughs> We're Standard Issue magazine on Facebook and you can also find us on Instagram because we are down with the kids at Standard Issue Podcast. Hello there. I am joined not on the phone... But in the actual In My House <laughs> by our music guru, the wonderful Liz Buckley. Liz, hello. Hi, it's nice to see you. Properly see you. <laughs> I get the feeling you say that to pretty much anyone at the moment. I've not though. seen anyone, so it's just you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm like the gateway drug. <laughs> Which is what my mum thought Pro Plus was for heroin. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, bless your, her. Your mum's obviously quite easy to get hooked. <laughs> Have you met my mum? <laughs> no, I liked it. She's sounds fun. <laughs> She's very easy fun. I'm sorry, mum, that sounds <laughs> Liz, mm. which brilliant female artist are we talking about today? We're going to talk Joan Jett. Yes, Joan Jett. So Joan Jett is 62 on 22nd of September, and that seemed excuse enough. We don't need much of an excuse to talk about Joan Jett. No, she's amazing. <laughs> she, she is a proper rock and roll icon. She is. Uh, actually, Debbie Harry said that she is the rock and roll animal that she would name if someone had to say who's the most rock and roll person you've ever met. Joan Jett. Yeah. She's uh, 100% all the time. You know, she lives it. She breathes it. And it's it's so wonderfully important to her that she never deviates. You know, she'll say, I, I don't have relationships because I'm completely committed to the music. You know, the way that she lives, she'll, you know, she'll be there in a hundred degree heat wearing faux leather because she's very pro-animal rights. It's oh, not real leather. Know. Yeah, yeah. She's completely righteous, actually. She's very pro-trans rights, animal rights, riot girl, you know, the works. She's just there, like, supporting absolutely everybody. She's amazing like that. So, yeah. I love how relevant she still is as well. So she's always involved in every scene. I think a lot of people see her almost a bit... You know, sort of like a Pat Benatar, like hard rock American, not middle of the road, but you know, she will tour with like Kiss and um, Alice Cooper and she's on tour next year with Motley Crue and Poison. But, um, she's still touring. She's, oh, God, yeah. This she's doing festivals. News. But she also plays with anybody that she's interested in that's relevant. So, you know, she produced Bikini Kill. She uh, recorded with the Germs. You know, she she wrote with Babes in Toyland. She played with the Gits. You know, <laughs> anything that she thinks is interesting. Then she's, you know, she's just out there doing stuff with people. Yeah. Actually, the Gits thing, talking about her being righteous, that was always an amazing name. Gits always makes me laugh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the gits, but I was enjoying you saying the gits. I'm going to keep saying gits. Good. The gits. Good. Well, now I've got to take it down a notch because it was a sad story about the gits. But like, um, their lead singer was attacked. She was raped and murdered, Mia. Joan stepped in and she became the vocalist for the gits to make an album to fund the police investigation into what happened to her. And they found the perpetrator. So Joan will put money back into things like that. She put it towards charities for domestic abuse, for women that could do self-defence lessons, things like that. She's just like, how can I help? You know, something awful has happened. So yeah, she's she's phenomenal really. She's an absolute force. They are incredibly feminist actions and we were chatting a little bit about the runaways yeah. and how maybe people perceive them. So I guess my question is, is, is Joan a feminist? 
Completely. I mean, I wrestled with that a bit when I was younger, like, oh, uh, you know, they're all in basques and they've got men sort of wanking over them. And it's, it was, I mean, the runaways, if people aren't familiar, were, were literally sort of billed as jailbait. There were 14 year old girls out there in stockings and suspenders. And it, it was, it was quite challenging, but it was totally done in a way that they wanted to own their sexuality. It was theirs. It wasn't for other people, you know, and they wanted to kind of go, look, you know, just being female is a political act, having a guitar at that time. There were nobody that they could look up to. Nobody was doing it. I think Joan quite famously says something like, um, you didn't have to do anything to freak people out. All you had to do was turn up. Yeah. And they would get bottles thrown at them. She had a car battery thrown at her once. Just being a girl holding a guitar was seen as an act of rebellion. It was astonishing. So, like, they were trying to own their sexuality. And actually, Joan... So um, Sherry uh, Curry, who's the singer of The Runaways, or the classic singer, before Joan took over. Joan was actually a bit of a tomboy. You know, she will be there in the black T-shirt, black jeans, Keith Richard haircut, you yeah. know. So there was lots of different looks going on. And it was just like, we are women and we are wearing what we want to wear. And if you find it threatening, all the better. Because they were ferocious. And all of their lyrics are quite challenging. They're not sort of like, you want us, and, you know, we're very sort of willing victims. It's all sort of like, I'm going to give it to you till you're sore, you know. It's, <laughs> it's sort of like, if you honestly think you're hard enough, you're fucking not. So <laughs> <laughs> That reminds me quite a lot of the slips. There's a real punk yeah. attitude there as oh, well. Oh, totally, totally. And, like, you know, Joan used to hang out with the Sex Pistols, and, you know, she's, like Debbie said, she's a rock and roll animal, you know, mm -hmm. that... But actually, Iggy Pop... Oh, I always turn to Iggy Pop. <laughs> oh, Liz is guru. Yeah. Iggy what, does, what does my God say? He he said, <laughs> Joan is nobody's sidecar, which I absolutely love. That, that is a great way of putting it, yeah. because so many women are just pushed to the side or are a sidekick or the, the vocals, yeah. as opposed to the heart and soul. Yeah. And indeed, um, loins of a band. And he'd like, you get rock chicks, for sure. So, like, you know, girls that will turn up and they'll be the perfect rock and roll girlfriend. But she was the whole deal and any bloke that was with her was the you know the part-timer or the sidekick she's she was the one so and also the very fact that she was the guitarist and she became the vocalist and then she became the solo act what balls does it take to take over a group like that. I'm not allowing you to say what balls it was clearly <laughs> flaps <laughs> she had flaps of steel <laughs> and still does no and doubt still <laughs> does. So, the, so the first time I heard Joan Jett and fell in love with her Mm -hmm. and her music was through the film Flashdance, right. which, bless him, my granddad, VHS, recorded off the telly for me because I absolutely wanted to see the story of Welder by Day, Dancer by Night. And I love rock and roll is in it. And that tune still stands up. It's oh, my God. Right, so, like, I, I don't know if people know the context, but so when The Runaways finished, Joan's devastated because The Runaways were her band. She set it up. It was all her concept. She made it happen. Absolute heartbreak, genuine heartbreak. So she wanted to go solo. She wanted to keep making music. She decided to have a male backing band because she was like, all anybody ever talks about is the fact we're a female band. And she wanted to talk about the music rather than the fact that they were girls. You know, she was sick of that. Like that novelty act dismissal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And also it would always be compared to the Runaways if she had another female band. Yeah, so She totally. just wanted it to be different. And also it's fascinating actually how many members of the Black Hearts there were and that they're not really talked about you know, in the same breath that she would be. They're, they're kind of, you know, the bit parts. And um, not even a bad seed. 
hey, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, no, like the bad seeds, I think, are a good example because the, the key bad seeds who everyone remembers are absolutely like geniuses in their own right. <laughs> yeah. And the black hearts, like, I Well, I yeah, I mean, Nick Cave did say, there was a and a thing that I went to, well, I've been to many, many Q&As with the bad seeds, but like... Um, one of them, somebody said, "What are some of the bad seeds more important than others?" And I was a bit shocked by that. And it's so totally true. Of course they are. Yeah. But Nick sort of went, "Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's not pretend." You know, Warren Barry Adams and they're just iconic blicks that some people Mick, think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, and then there's some other guys. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, some of the black hearts are totally. It's some other guys that aren't Joan, and it's actually amazing that to have a female fronted band where you're like, and some other dudes, you know. Mm-hmm. So when Joan was pitching, you know, she, she'd proved herself. I mean, the, the runaways are fantastic in the sense that you couldn't dismiss them, even if, though people would be like, you could kind of have a totally sexist guy going, you know, they're just some girls in their underwear, they, but they could play, you know. I mean, you, in fact, you've got Joan Jett and Lita Ford in the same band. It was fucking strong, you know. Their songwriting spoke for itself. They're one of the biggest bands that have ever been in Japan. They're fucking huge. And Are they in, still huge though? Yeah, oh my God, like Live in Japan is like one of the biggest selling albums in that country of all time. It's one of the biggest imports to America of all time. Wow. It was like Beatlemania and it was girls. It's not boys liking the Runaways. I think it really chimed in Japan because at the time especially, women were sort of almost treated like second-class citizens. So they really loved the sort of kick-ass, you know, you, we've got some attitude here. And it kind of released something in Japanese teenagers where they're like, no, fuck this, and in a major, major way. So that was kind of really liberating but what kind of era are we talking is this late 70s and, yeah, early 80s l- late runaways are sort of like 77's like their heyday kind great of year great. <laughs> it's all of our heydays so Joan when she went solo very famously 23 record labels said you've got no songs no thank you and then I Love Rock and Roll 10 million copies sold she released it on her own label Blackheart Records because she was just like fuck this she was selling it out the boot of her car she's number one across the world for eight weeks you know oh I think I love (laughs) an absolute fuck you world and fuck you music business you know and her background you're talking about venues they were playing that don't even have female toilets because it's the assumption is if you're an artist you're a man you know so her background was totally women don't do this so she just did it herself she was like no I'm doing this no matter what and nobody can stop me but I love the fact that she clearly didn't care too much I mean I'm sure she did because we all end up doing that but she didn't care too much about what other people thought and I guess that's kind of brought together in Bad Reputation which is a rather huge one for me Mm. and was obviously the theme tune for one of the best TV shows ever, Freaks and Geeks (laughs) and it was an astonishing song. Did Joan have a good reputation do you think amongst other musicians? Yeah totally, I mean the very fact that she gets support slots with absolutely enormous bands, I mean she played with Talking Heads and it's not just sort of like you know slightly cartoon bands Um, you know they're absolutely across David Byrne is going to (laughs) be <laughs> well, I'm thinking more because she played with like Kiss and Alice <laughs> Cooper and stuff, but the support slots that they've had over the years it shows total respect. You know, Ramones, Tom Petty, all over the shop. You know, mm-hmm. she's written with all sorts of people. And yeah, I mean, she's completely and utterly respected. She's got a range of Gibson guitars. She's gone from kind of going, I'm not even allowed to pick one up, to people going, I don't want a guitar like you kind of thing. I mean, to, to, for a teenage Joan to imagine that. 
is phenomenal, really. And she, she's iconic. I mean, there's a Barbie Joan Jett. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. I wonder how she feels about that. She must have sanctioned it. I guess so. Fucking hell, all Barbies should look like Joan Jett. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about this previously. I, I hesitate to force someone in to be in a role model because I think it's forced upon celebrities who are women much more than it is men. Mm. But it feels like she's a really good role model for young girls who want to be musicians. Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for generations as well. And like Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill will say, that was 100% the reason that I wanted to do this. And then, you know, it goes full circle with Joan writing with Kathleen Hanna and producing Bikini Kill. And, um, you know, like she is still interested in what other people are doing. And, you know, she stays relevant. There's a film called Bad Reputation, which is about Joan Jett. And that's actually made... So this is great. So Joan was a songwriter with Kenny Laguna, and that's almost become like her business partner. Um, you know, he's not a partner partner, but they're so close. Like he'll do stuff like gaffer tape up her leather trousers for her and stuff. They're amazing in the film. They're sort of like proper George and Mildred. Sort of like while she's talking, it'll just sort of feed her. <laughs> they're old time buddies. But um, he had such faith in her, and like he's like a very well to do music producer, very well respected and stuff. He put all of his own money into helping her when the 23 labels said no. You know, he was just like, this woman's got talent. And he had, all of his money was made in bubblegum pop. He's got famous doing stuff like, yummy, 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 give me love in my tummy and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and then he's writing with Joan Jett. But it's this brilliant marriage because punk is simplistic and it's punchy. Yeah. And, you know, it's strong choruses and it's a very memorable phrase. And actually, yummy, 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 give me love in my tummy is is rude. You know, even though these things are sort of saccharine, they always had that sort of slight sexual thing. So they made a really, really good team. So Kenny's daughter's college fund built Black Heart Records. And then Kenny's daughter is now the president of Black Heart Records. And she made the documentary. And she's got this sort of inner circle that are so incredibly loyal to her and fond of her. And it shows you what a lovely person she must be. Yeah. Is Joan Jett still recording? You mentioned she was touring, and obviously she's got a vast back catalogue to lean on, but what, what was her latest album? Oh, so there's a Mark Bolan tribute album that has just come out that has Nick Cave on it, uh, doing Cosmic Girl, I think, and um, Joan's done Jeepster. So, you know, she's still always doing stuff and recording and touring and... Um, I've forgotten what tour she was on, but she, she, she did one of the massive American tours a couple of years ago when she just turned 60. You know, she's out there. She's doing it. Jeepsters seems like one of the most perfect covers that Joan Jett could do. And obviously she's got previous with covers. She's released quite a lot of covers. Mm. It's something that is very much a Joan Jett trademark. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she's, you know, I love rock and roll with the arrows, crimson and clover. You know, she she does almost rock standards. There's hundreds of them. And she's done whole covers albums and stuff. And she's brilliant at it. But the brilliant thing, I think, is that she will change the pronouns in them so crimson and clover she'll say i don't hardly know her i think i could love her you know that's quite at the time a little bit shocking it's her kind of way of going i I love women and you know deal with it basically (laughs) it feels like she's she's shown that throughout her career and also with what we started off talking about at the top Mm. with her actions as well she's she's got so much respect for women and she's never made a secret of that even when it was kind of seen as the cool thing to do or the career boosting thing to do was to try to be one of the boys she's always very much been a very proud woman yeah 100 percent. that is 
what she does and she that's all she's ever done really you know she's uh she's team girl <laughs> team girl yeah well, happy birthday joan happy birthday joan yeah i mean i absolutely love actually in that bad reputation film that i mentioned billy joe armstrong from green jay just suddenly says you know when i was little what i really wanted to do was grow up and be joan jet and you never get boys going that was who i wanted to be you get girls going oh i really wanted to be mac jagger but there was no women to look up to to have a boy go I wanted to be Joan Jett when he's had that many rock stars that he could have wanted to be. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the best thing he's ever said, I think. <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Liz, thank you so much. That was fascinating. And I love her a little bit more now. Yay. <laughs> Hi, I am joined on the phone by Kaya Stanley Money, Executive Director of Camden People's Theatre. Hello. Hi, nice to be here. You closed your doors on March the 17th. I mean, big question though that is, what the hell has been going on for you since then? Yeah, what a time. I mean, the first few weeks were just bizarre. We were talking the other day about the build-up to closing our doors and realizing you know probably about three weeks before it happened that it was going to happen and that we needed to plan for it and I think that was really challenging because obviously at that point we didn't know any of the well there was no support the furlough scheme didn't exist nothing like that existed and you just had no idea what we were moving into but I mean basically since then we've done a lot of fundraising my whole job has been (laughs) fundraising and a lot of scenario planning I think we had about six or seven different budgets running for the for the building you know to try and look at various points when we were going to be able to reopen we've also spent a lot of time trying to communicate with our artists and our staff and our team in the best way that we can I think trying to be open and honest about where we're at and what we think is going on but also trying not to freak people out too much about, you know, what the future's looking like. So, yeah, that has been a really weird one. And I think a lot of the artists, so we primarily work with artists who are early career, so in the first five years of their career. And I think it's been particularly difficult for those people. Their lives has just kind of gone and their whole identity has disappeared. Everything that they know, the people that they know, the way that they live their lives has just kind of gone. And so we've been trying to support them a little bit with, connecting people through zoom obviously but making sure that they know we as a building are here to support them and that you know we're there to connect with them so yeah that's been one arm of it and then we handed our building over to a food charity called food for all who give out thousands of food packages every day from the theater that's why i'm here today and that's been really wonderful because we went from our building being kind of desolate and dark to being really vibrant and really supporting our community again in a very physical way which yeah which was great so yeah, and now we're just we're just starting. So we've just launched a load of commissions for artists to develop work, so seed commissions and also some bigger commissions for them to think about what performance might look like now, either through digital performance or like what socially distanced yeah oh okay so i was gonna ask you that question Mm. i mean the national theater is opening with clint dyer's follow-up to the death of england i mean fingers crossed it happens i don't know we're still not entirely sure what is going to happen obviously alan bennett's talking heads got a revival on the television over lockdown is this going to be the golden age of the monologue of the one man or the one woman play do you think (laughs) Weirdly, so we, we're a very small theatre and a lot of the work that we support is solo work. Right. 
but I'd argue like the kind of where we support is not a monologue. So I think there's like a, there's a distinction between the kind of monologue talking to the audience, you know, and solo work that can be created that is multifaceted and complex and, you know, multimedia and everything. So I'm quite interested in that kind of work. And we luckily for us do program a lot of that kind of stuff. But I think what's going to be really interesting is whether we can, so part of some of the commissions that we're doing now, we want our, the artists that we work with who tend to push form and mix different types of performance from like drag and cabaret mixed with live music, you know, that we're, we want them to start to think about what their digital yeah. or alternative work looks like. And we haven't announced the commissions yet, but there's some really brilliant ideas about how you can connect with people digitally in their homes and then have experiences that are also live. I hope that that could be a kind of really interesting moment for live performance that that still sits within that digital world and can because what's brilliant about digital obviously is it kind of makes a lot of work accessible to people who wouldn't be able to access it and absolutely um, absolutely that's exciting I can't (laughs) tell you how many times I have said that the the one or one of the the best things that happened in in lockdown I think was that Hamilton went on to the Disney Channel, so for five pounds ninety nine, everybody in your house could see it. Whereas yeah. previously, you've needed probably at least two hundred, three hundred pounds to get everyone out to see that. I mean, it's it's amazing. I, I hope it leads to the success of that leads to other stuff coming. You know, let's have come from away. Let's have. Um, it's not called. We need to talk about Jamie. What's it called? Uh, everyone's talking about Jamie. Yeah, let's have everyone's talking about Jamie. Let's have all yeah. of that stuff on the telly so people can watch it in their homes because that is equality of access for all. It's an amazing yeah. idea. Yeah, exactly. Can I talk to you about money? I mean, mm. it, it, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I've just sat and said it costs that much to go to Hamilton and sometimes you look and think, how is it simultaneously that there's the theatre is so expensive and yet there's no money in theatre, really. And at the minute, yeah. everyone was closed for a few months. It seemed like everyone was almost immediately teetering on the edge of, of, of financial disaster. I mean, why is theatre so expensive to make? And what do you think that the future is going to be for theatre, given that you can now fit even less people in them? Are prices going to go up or, well, you tell me. It's really difficult. I think I think theatre is very expensive to make because there's so many people involved yeah. in it. And all of those people are involved in it all the time. So it's not like you just pay actors to create a show and then the show is made, like a TV show. Yeah. And then the TV show exists. The actors aren't involved anymore. Every time you perform a show, all of those performers are involved. All of the technicians are involved every night. So it never gets cheaper to run, yeah. if that makes any sense. So I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, we will not be putting our ticket prices up because part of what we do is, A, we try and be as incl- inclusive as possible, which is really important to us as a venue that like tries to support very diverse artists, tries to encourage all sorts of audiences to come and have a go. But also because we develop work from artists who are early career, often you would never have heard of these people. Yeah. So to encourage people to take a chance on coming to see an artist they've never heard of yeah. making something really wacky you can't you know we wouldn't be charging 20 quid or whatever so we can't put our ticket prices up I think I think we do need to start to change the way that we value the art 
that is made. And I think actually being more open and honest about how expensive it is to put stuff on does make people realise the value of what they're going to see and the energy and time that people put into making that work should in some way be valued. I don't, I mean, the big issue is that most venues will not really be opening with social distancing in place obviously we're now seeing some great examples of the national who are like trying to rethink their seating plans to make it work financially but certainly spaces like ours and other small spaces that we don't have loads of money to make those changes and to have to experiment with seating in that way we're basically totally shifting our focus and doing loads of artist development and community support and everything else until we can open without massive social distancing i mean i think there's going to have to be some level of that for a while but it's really difficult. I don't I don't think there are any answers really, aside from, you know, really lobbying and making sure that the venues that do need to survive are the ones that have a genuine impact in their community, a genuine impact on artists and on supporters. And I think I think that's going to be more important than ever going forward because we are going to need the support of trusts and foundations and the government and everyone else for us to weather this storm because it for a lot of places it's not even this year that's the worry you know it's next year yeah. so yeah it's it's really it's really difficult i feel very grateful that we have quite low overheads so we've been able to be quite nimble for now yeah but yeah it's not it's not been fun uh. <laughs> can, can i ask you what you think you've learned about the value of theater in its absence yeah it's interesting isn't it for me it's just about connection and sharing a space with other people and sharing an experience with other people and you can't really describe what the value is but not having it is so I don't know I think I feel like it's so empty whether that's just you know seeing street performers in the street or whatever however you engage with culture it's about a shared experience whether that is going to the theatre or seeing a juggler on the you know doing their thing and that lack of kind of social contact and and community I think has has been really obvious and and missing um I went to a outdoor comedy show the other day which was my first live experience at the Brighton open air theatre and it was glorious like it was glorious it was so good just laughing with other people it was amazing and it's one of those things that I think we could very easily live without like we have done over the last four months we've we've lived without it you could, I think you could so get used to living without it, but life is so much more empty and without, you, you know, and I, we run the risk of it being like, oh, you know, I've not been to the theatre for six months and, you know, maybe I don't need to go anymore. But actually, when you have that physical experience of being in the space, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I really miss it. Um, now, you mentioned the word diversity. I know that in the new things that you've commissioned, you have made a particular effort to try and commission them from areas, for example, disabled artists uh, who perhaps don't get a fair crack of the whip. I mean, how widespread is that? How white, middle-class, straight, able-bodied is theatre still, do you think, in this country? It's still very inaccessible to a lot of people. I personally started in the industry not knowing anybody. I was not very well connected and I've fallen into a part of the industry that is actually like really really diverse and really open and like the the kind of contemporary theatre that we make is it's radical in its form it's radical in the people who want to make it you know it's not one size fits all theatre actors who've gone to drama school directors who've had placements the work that we make is very 
collaborative and I think it attracts a totally different kind of artist so you know we like most of the I don't know over 40 percent of the artists who we who were on in our theatre last year identified as LGBT you know they and they make a lot of work about gender and about like literally everything so our little pocket of the sector is very vibrant in its diversity that being said we still have a lot more to do and I think partly so we'd been on this journey for a couple of years we we'd created this um kind of commissioning pathway I guess which starts off with a seed commission which helps us connect with lots of different artists from different backgrounds and then we can commission more work then we can build up to a larger commission where they end up doing a three-week run you know so it's a journey that it's a supported journey Mm. that artists can go on to get their foot in the door to develop their practice and to develop their confidence as artists and we've been doing that with artists of colour for a few years and then last year started fundraising to kind of extend it into reach all sorts of different marginalized voices to and but the the most important thing is it's providing a a structured pathway that people can grab onto and you know for a lot of people who come from different backgrounds not having consistency in your work or not being able to plan is actually a major barrier so if we can say every year we're going to offer six seed commissions people can kind of plan and work Mm. out how you know, and, and create the, their own pathway for their careers. Whereas if it's like, here's a sudden commission that's going to happen once and never happen again. I don't know, then it just makes yeah. it really difficult to kind of actually work out how to sustain their careers and how to sustain their practice. Um, yeah. We revel in the fact that we can be radical and that people come to us expecting something that they've never seen mm. before. Like, you know, years, I don't know, it was probably like four or five years ago before my time, they um brian our artistic director put on a festival of gig theater which didn't exist back then and now you know that's very popular Uh, it's not a musical but it's a gig theater and we can we yeah we're lucky that we can play with form but that is also something that is going to be so important coming out of this crisis is that we can still provide a platform for work that isn't just the canon you know and I think there's already a couple of venues who've announced new seasons who've come under fire for like being all male playwrights and all you know and it's I know that's difficult because they do you know their audiences will expect a particular type of work but I think especially after Covid I think we've got to work even harder to make sure that we push new ideas and it's because otherwise that's what our whole cultural sector is built on is us being world leading in that respect and I think with it's going to be harder to fight for because a lot of the people who will be you know especially at our stage where they're in the first couple of years of their career if we lose them we run the risk now of losing this whole generation of artists who could go on to make the next I may destroy you you know and yeah absolutely and, and they all you've got to keep the kind of grassroots side of it going um if you want it to yeah inform the rest of the cultural sector that we know and love you know yeah yeah absolutely you have got some things coming up though I I believe you're doing Mm. something outside on Sunday the 27th of September we are hosting our first kind of outdoor community event so we've put together a little mini cabaret basically of fun performances in a square just behind our theatre called Thomas Square there's basically like a little grassy knoll the idea is that all of the community can watch from their windows from their balconies that overlook the park and then we've got 
a few like socially distanced spaces that people can kind of come and sit so it's free for our local community um and we've just put together some fun like visual stuff we've got a hula hooper we've got um some like beats and elements who are like uh beatbox theater makers are kind of emceeing the whole thing um so yeah it should be really nice and it was for us it was just a chance to give something back to our community that had a cultural focus and to start reconnecting with them as a you know as a theater venue not just as a you know food you know food hub and all that kind of thing but also just to see how it all worked really you know there's so many brilliant companies who do make outdoor performance and do all these amazing things and we're you know very novice in that but um yeah it's just a chance for us to before the summer completely disappears to have a little moment of connecting with some culture and some performance talking of food i know obviously they're just in your building so you may not be expert Mm. but from from what you know from that how is camden doing as a whole in this i don't even know what to call it anymore it's just this we all know what we're talking um, about well, you know, the, our, the Food Hub's been running here since June. So Food for All are the food charity who run it. And um, we have not seen any demand waiver. It's If anything, it's increased over the last couple of months. So I don't know, really. I think it's been immensely difficult for all of the young people. So we run a youth theatre as well, which we, we managed to get online within the first week, which was amazing. The team were absolutely phenomenal. I think that's been incredibly important for them I know that they all felt a lot of the young people felt initially like their futures had kind of been yeah I don't know like taken away from them a little bit and then the exams fiasco which I think was really really challenging um but actually having you know on a Monday and a Friday they could get together and on a, in a digital space but still kind of connect with each other and have a bit of social interaction under the guise of you know creating a new show so that's been really important but I think it's I think the pressure on young people in our area has been like massive it feels weirdly like we're entering a world where we're, it feels like we're going to start all over again and you know, I know we might go back there to, towards the end of it but but from a demand point of view like there's more people than ever you know using the services of food for all um so it's tricky I don't think it's I don't think it's great Okay, well, we can give them a plug here. Um, Food for All are helping people oh, yeah. in, in Camden. Let's give a plug to you. If people want to help you out, what is the best way of doing that? So they can head to our website, um, which is uh, Um and there's a support us button there, and there's loads of different ways that you can support. And, you know, we're also just up for connecting with people who are doing great things. So if there's, you know projects in the area or stuff happening then we're, we're happy to kind of connect on that way as well excellent thank you so much this has been really interesting thank you it's been great chatting to you Welcome to Rated or Dated. This week we are watching Mickey's Choice. Over to you, Mick. Well, this week we are about to discover whether 30 years on we've lost that loving feeling. Fucking hell, how old am I? Uh, uh, 46. This film is 30, how old am I? Yeah, we're, we're about to discover whether... On its 30th birthday, we've lost that loving feeling for 1990 supernatural sob fest, Ghost. And indeed, whether Hannah ever even had that loving feeling for Ghost. 
I have seen it before once on video when I was at some of my mates' houses when I was about or one of my mates' house. I didn't have mates that had houses. (laughs) Uh, The one one with the swimming pool, Hannah, and the horses. (laughs) Yeah. When I was about, I was at school, so 16, 17, something like that. But everybody at school absolutely loved it. It was insanely popular at my school. It just wasn't really my bag at the time, I have to say. Or indeed now. Uh, Keep your powder dry. Well, like you were saying about your mates at school, a lot, and I mean a lot of people have very loving feelings, indeed, towards this box office smash, which took nigh on $506 million at the box office to become the highest grossing film of 1990 and, at the time of release, the third highest grossing film of all time. It was nominated for five Oscars, with Whoopi Goldberg taking home Best Supporting Actress for her role as Oda Mae Brown, a so-far-so-scam psychic surprised to discover she has the gift after all. Ghost also stars Patrick Swayze as Sam Wheat, the titular spook after he's killed in a botched mugging, Demi Moore as his bereft girlfriend and slapper of priapic pots, and Tony Goldwyn as Sam's creepy conniving best mate, clearly mourning the 1980s and hungry for cash. It is the solo directorial debut for Jerry Zucker, until then most famous for Zucker Abraham Zucker goofball successes such as Airplay and Naked Gun, and it is quite the departure, no pun intended. Anyway, a quick plot summary before we get to hear Hannah's disappointment uh, of this potent mix of horror, comedy, romance and thriller. So Manhattan banker Sam Wheat has just moved into an unfeasibly massive loft apartment with his boho love Molly, while best mate Carl from work is very much the third wheel in their relationship. Sam knows about some big money in certain accounts. Carl wants in, so he hires ne'er-do-well Willie Lopez to steal Sam's wallet containing the account details. Lopez gets carried away, murders Sam. But Sam stays on Earth as a ghost, learns some haunting skills and sets out on a quest to protect Molly and bring down Willie and Carl with the help of Brooklyn psychic Oda Mae Brown. Cops don't believe in ghosts, chaos ensues, bad people die and Sam finally goes off to his sky rave, leaving Molly and Ada Mae with a bureaucratic nightmare of red tape and a lot of explaining to do. I imagine we don't get to see that bit. No. He just goes off in a highway to heaven style, just walking into the light. does. I mean, let's start there. I had forgotten, and I've seen Ghost a lot, but I had forgotten how large religion looms in Ghost, the film. Well, I was thinking about this question in that, you know, obviously I don't believe in anything, but would you walk into the light? I'd much rather that than the screaming demonic shadows that used to scare the shit out of me. Yeah, but would you, if you died, would you walk into the light if it appeared? Because I absolutely definitely would. Because if, after everything I've said about religion, heaven was still prepared to take me in, (laughs) it actually sounds quite good. Because the people who talk about it a lot, it sounds great up there. I don't know that I would want to hang around on Earth haunting people. I would definitely take my opportunity to go into the light. They'd be like, there's been an administrative mistake here. This light is for somebody else. If I don't walk into it now, it's going to vanish. I actually think it does it quite well in that I can imagine a lot of people, if like, if we're going to imagine for a moment that what happens is real and that in his head, Sam continues chasing the mugger, turns to Molly and says, Molly got away only to see her crouched on the ground over his body and then goes, fucking hell, I died. And then the white light immediately comes down. You'd be very confused. I can understand why he's confused. Well, I, I can, uh, there's a good reason to be confused because although I have to say that rug pull is great, that is like the best thing about 
ghost is the rug pull of oh he's chasing him yeah oh, no, he's dead very good but he's not dead at that point so it makes no narrative sense at all oh yeah they try to save him don't they he's still alive yeah and yet a ghost at the same time so that's a bit weird is this the only plot hole? It's the only loophole in the in an otherwise like watertight plot, though, Hannah. <laughs> well, absolutely. If you're going to be talking about it, you've at least have some sort of make narrative sense of it, and that makes no narrative sense. I mean, personally, the the one thing I really hold against this film is it's partly, in fact, this film is entirely responsible for the singing career of Robson and Jerome, and that it should be punished for. To be honest, yeah. Um, well, I don't think they released it till way later. Uh, nonetheless. It's the righteous Absolutely. Yeah. No, I can see the link. I'm not arguing with the links, Hannah. I'm not arguing. Yeah, so uh, I wasn't uh, best pleased with that. Uh, from a pop culture point of view, obviously, it, it does have a couple of like lines in it that permeated pop culture, but it is the, the pottery scene, so we might as well talk about that. Personally, my favourite ghost parody is the one that happens in Community, where Tony Hale Hale is playing a pottery teacher who is very, very lovely and gentle, except if someone brings up ghost and then he becomes exceptionally (laughs) aggressive with shouts, no ghosting! I enjoy that too. I think my favourite spoof of this, uh, this like much-loved part of the pop culture pantheon is, it's actually in one of Zucker's own later films, it's in Naked Gun, Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear, where there's two hands on the pot and then more hands yeah. and then just more hands keep coming in on the pot. I like that. And I was quite disappointed when it didn't happen when I was rewatching Ghost. That scene's actually quite short. I know she's making this. No, see, I thought it was pot. really long. In fact, I didn't realise how graphic it was. Bit. The, the, how sort of, yeah. because there's an overhead shot of them of that goes on for ages, which is just the most phallic thing that's ever existed in cinema. And I just don't know how they had the brass neck to put it in there, to be honest, because it's so ridiculous. It's so ripe for parody. It is. Now, I think I already know the answer to this question, so I'll go with my answer first. But did you find it sexy? Like, for me, a middle-aged woman, I could just not get over how fucking messy that was going to be. There was going to be splatters everywhere. But almost immediately, when they start just like, like, they're both entirely clean. They must have stopped and washed their hands. There's a tiny bit of clay dust for source appeal, but yeah, they are magically cleansed of all of the yeah. the sticky wet clay they've been having a go at. I personally, I mean, I didn't like it, but it's not my bag anyway. But I found it was too long, and I think the first forty minutes really labour. It's not until Whoopi Goldberg arrives that it sort of ups the ante a bit and starts to kick into gear. And she is obviously good. But what I will say positive, because I'm going to try and say positive things about it. I think the effects, are, with the exception of the demons that come, the ghosty, smoky things, I think the effects are spot terrifying, on. Huh? But the effects are really good. They've, yeah, really, they've really lasted. He doesn't look, when he's in the scene with himself, he doesn't look as green screened as, as I was expecting. And when he walks through things, he, it doesn't look as, as shit as I was expecting it to, given that 30 years have passed. I guess so, like, so this is 1990, 1984, Ghostbusters, and obviously we're going to talk about that in an upcoming mm. flicking. But the effects look sort of shonky in Ghostbusters, absolutely, but there's still been, like, six years of technology to get them much, much better. So you can you can appreciate that they've done some work there. And it's not overused in Ghost. I don't think they overuse it, and that often would date a film. 
I find Demi Moore's performance to be a bit meh. She doesn't get much to do. She's great at the beginning. Molly actually has a bit of life in her. But but there's some bits that are just so, like, she's... Okay, maybe it's not Demi Moore, actually. Maybe it's the way it's written. It, because she's kind of pathetic, Molly. And the scene in which the friend comes around and tries to seduce her, and he pours t- coffee down himself, and then he has to take his top... I mean, can you imagine if I had to take my top off every time I spilt something down myself, Mickey? I'd be sitting there naked <laughs> now as we as we did this. She is sitting here naked now, if you're interested. Just, just to, <laughs> cut, to cut out the But she does fall... F- and then there's another scene where where the guy, Willie, first breaks into her house. And it's really obvious that he's there because the cat goes mad. And it's really obvious. And she just goes, is there someone there? And you're like, your boyfriend just got stabbed in the street. Why are you not more scared about this? And and so her character... She got shot. Sorry. Shot still, yeah. But her character no, is entirely driven by the plot. She has literally no character traits. It's just... If she's being casual, it's because the plot demands that she's casual. If she's being stupid, it's because the plot demands that she's stupid. Yeah, I agree with you. And actually, I would say credit to Demi Moore, given that she's given so little to do. And I think it's a shame because Molly starts off quite a strong character, like getting her hands dirty. She's the one who wants to go and see Macbeth and get some culture and stuff. And then she sort of fades to hold her own in like the Swayze Goldberg like and be part of that triangle is quite hard and she doesn't disappear completely from the Do you, the do you think screen. Patrick Swayze's good in this? No, I think he's quite wooden. He's my, he's actually my least favorite character and let me explain why. So Sam is on this quest. He discovers that Carl is the guy who set him up and that's how he got murdered by Willie Lopez. But his glee at getting one over on Carl when he steals all the money back so that Carl is going to be in massive trouble. Lisa is like this massive subsequent goading via haunting. And that in turn leads to the whole nearly killing the woman Sam loves final act of the film. If Sam could have kept that male ego in check, none of the drama of Demi Moore, of Molly nearly getting killed, of like Oda May nearly getting killed, of Carl getting like really horrifically slashed through the chest by Sheldon would have happened. But so male egos are troublesome. Even when the fuckers are dead. Yeah, but he doesn't... The weird thing is, he overhears a conversation in which he realises Odomay Brown is in danger and he does nothing to go and protect her. He doesn't even pre-warn her of it. He just sort of carries yeah. on. And, okay, like, you know, weird logic brain. I'm going to say something probably exceptionally stupid. But, you know, if he's dead and heaven is so great and she might be killed... There's an argument for letting her be, and then they could go and both live in this great place called heaven together, right? Right? Do you, do you think we'd get in? Like, I found the lines of good and evil are so black and white in this film. Like, Sam does some pretty shitty stuff after he's died, and yet it's still like, come on into heaven, guys, you know? Yeah. But, and it's meant, yeah, he tries to steal some money, and he accidentally, he doesn't murder Sam. He keeps saying you're a murderer. He doesn't murder Sam. But Carl is, like, straight down there to hell. He is, to me, Patrick Swayze is one of those people a bit like, what's he called? Perpetual man of the future. Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston. In that I cannot understand why they were ever got to be as famous as they were. Like, number one, they're not very good actors. They're quite wooden. In fact, for the entire scene in which every time he looks at Molly and that face is supposed to be love, it looks like he's straining for a poo to me. Every time. <laughs> Does that not mean yeah. someone loves you, But, I, but also, oh. I don't get... I suppose if I'm standing in the room looking at them while they're doing it, maybe it does. <laughs> but 
I don't do that so much anymore. Now I live by myself. Why did my lord just keep leaving Mickey? There's there's no sense to it. I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. But I don't even think he's that much. Like, you know, he's not that hot. So I don't really understand why Patrick Swayze got to be like as famous. Yeah, he's dancing in it. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, worth mentioning just briefly what makes this film slightly less like dreadful is that Stephen Root is briefly in it, which is great. I've written Stephen Root, exclamation mark. Yeah, so so have I. I just think this film really just lacks just, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I I mean, from from the point of view of watching something that's old, that's got drama in it, and watching something that is 30 years old, at least they don't have to do that whole what reason can Molly not get help stuff? Because, you know... You know, now when you watch stuff, you'd be like, Molly would have had to say, oh, no, my mobile phone's dead, like 30 seconds before Sam yeah. was shot. A whole way through that fight, she keeps saying, Sam, stop it. And I was like, don't stop it. He's going to fucking shoot you if you stop it. Carry on. <laughs> like, fight for your life, Sam. It's a confusing message, I think, she puts out there. As well as Stephen Root, exclamation mark, I've also written Vincent Chiavelli, exclamation mark, because he's great in it. I've forgotten about the poltergeist on the train, yeah. the angry poltergeist on the train. He taught, he taught Patrick Swayze how to be more Hannah yeah. and therefore haunt better. Push it down. Also, I think Whoopi Goldberg is magnificent in this film. Yeah. And I immediately went and watched Jumping Jack Flash straight afterwards, which is a great film. Yeah. I immediately watched Ghostbusters afterwards because, well, because <laughs> I needed to. And I thought, hey, I'm in the 1980s. Let's see what happens. I mean, there are things in that date it, as in specifically date it to a certain time. Like, for example, you know, the cigarette machines on the uh, subway, which God knows how long they've been gone for. But the thing that suddenly struck me in a post-COVID world is that, I mean, the coughing in the joke lift wasn't fo- wasn't funny in the first place. But, yeah, you oh, would wow. be beaten to yeah. death if you did that now, wouldn't you? <laughs> also, um, on a call note, Carly does his coughing in the lift. What dated it a lot for me and I found hilarious is he's doing all this for $80,000. Don't get me wrong, it's not an amount of cash I would sniff at, but watching this in 2020, $80,000 all felt a little bit Dr. Evil's $1 million. Yeah. It just Was like it not $4 million? But he wasn't getting all of that. He was only getting $80,000 of it, which seems not much for your mate's life. Also, it's very yuppie. The yuppie school duggery is quite dated. Can I just say, just to be clear, Mickey, I would need at least 85,000, yeah. 85, in order to... Uh, I love you, man. Yeah. I love you, thanks. I feel I feel moved. I feel touched. Yeah. And also Swayze's blouse on shirt. That's quite dated, isn't it? Oh, and I was going to say Demi Moore's array of dungarees, and I wondered if maybe you'd oddly been inspired to take up pottery now that you've got the dungarees. Uh, yeah, not so much. Not so much. No? Uh, the one thing that I did think that from a fashion point of view, apart from those slightly bloused over shirts that all the men had, was uh, her earrings, which uh, I think every single girl in my school had those sort of drop earrings that had like a bit and then a bit more and drop ones. They were pretty yeah. common, even though I think you actually have to have short hair to actually show those off. But She rocks the short hair, Demi Moore. She looks awesome. Yeah. Why don't women have short hair anymore? Open question. Answers on a postcard to the usual address. So clearly it's dated. And again, I'm asking a question that I already know Hannah's answer to. But let's hear it for the podcast. Hannah, are you a racing or dating ghost? 
Well, you know, it's difficult because if I'm going to say rated or dated and rated is the opposite to dated, I would say rated because I do think that it has aged well. I think the effects stand up. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with it that it couldn't be remade and wouldn't seem to be massively problematic or something. So from that point of view, it's not dated. But would I ever watch it again out of choice? Good God, no. No. (laughs) I still found it eminently watchable and it wouldn't be anywhere in my top 100. But I didn't resent the two hours of my life watching it and having a little cry. Really? Had a little cry, Hannah. I would need £90,000 to kill you and have a cry to ghost. (laughs) Wow. Now I don't know how to feel, so let's move on to what we're going to watch next. So, next week, I thought we'd pick something else that I fucking hate as well. So, next week, it is the coming up on the 20th anniversary of the UK release of Coyote Ugly, which actually we did as a rated or dated Daisy Leverington did a rated or dated on this when we were back when we were a magazine. Perhaps after we've rated or dated Coyote Ugly, we can rate or date Daisy's Pace. We won't. Yeah, maybe. That'd be very meta. (laughs) We'll be too busy dancing on bath tops. Standard issue for all women.